Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. This morning, our text will be from Acts chapter 20, and we will be reading verses 13 through 24. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came, to the, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold... I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. May the Lord be glorified by the preaching of his word. Let us pray together as we come to this wonderful section of God's Word today. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, as always, we come to Your Word acknowledging that it is the Word that is breathed out by God, that these are the words that the Holy Spirit has inscribed, that they came through the the writings of these men, but according to the purpose and the infallible intent of Your Holy Spirit. Your Word is living. Your Word is active. Your Word is, Hebrews tells us, sharp like a double-edged sword and able to penetrate to the deepest recesses of our being and expose all that is there that needs to change. And so this morning, Father, we would pray that Your Word would be illuminated to our minds and our understanding and that it would be living and that it would be active and that it would be effective by the ministry of Your Holy Spirit in our lives and that You might continue the work that You have begun in us to transform us more and more by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, be with us. Holy Spirit, be with us this morning. Help us to not only be hearers of the Word who understand it, but to become more and more doers of the Word. And so may the words of my mouth this morning, may the meditations of our hearts on this your day be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the great themes in the writings of the Apostle Paul all throughout the New Testament Scriptures is the theme of imitation. Imitation. In a number of places... In the letters that Paul wrote to Christians and to churches in the New Testament, he urges Christians to imitate him. 
Like, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, I urge you then to be imitators of me. And the word that he uses the Greek is the Greek word mimetes. Kind of sounds like the English word imitate, right? We get our word from that. And we also get our word mimic in English from that Greek word mimetes. It just, it just means what you would think it means when you hear the English equivalents imitate or, or mimic. It means to copy. It means to follow after the pattern that someone establishes for you. When Paul says, be imitators of me, what he means is, is I want you to use my life as the model for the way that you live your life. And it's important to understand that whenever Paul says that kind of thing in the New Testament, and he's saying it here, by the way, in Acts chapter 20, to the elders at the church of Ephesus. What he's saying is not, look guys, here's what I went through, but, but I want you to live in the same way that I lived, and I want you to teach your church to live in the same way that I lived. That's what this section of Scripture is all about. And it's important to understand that whenever Paul says this kind of thing in the New Testament, and tells people and exhorts them to, to imitate his life, it's always in the context of his also talking about how much he's suffered for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of the gospel. So, for example, there in 1 Corinthians 4, where he says in verse 16, I urge you then to be imitators of me. Notice the word then in, in that statement. I urge you then, pointing back to what he's been talking about in the previous verses which was to tell the Corinthians all about how much suffering he'd endured in his ministry. How the world considered him to be weak and not strong. How people counted him a great fool because of all that he had lost for the cause that he was pursuing. How impoverished he always was. How hungry he often was. How distressed he often felt. How physically buffeted his body was wherever he went. How homeless he was so often. I mean, right? That sounds like a guy. That's, this sounds like a life that you'd want to emulate, right? That you'd want to imitate? When Paul says, imitate me, he's talking about how reviled he was constantly everywhere he went. How he was persecuted and slandered all the time. How he was treated. These are his words there in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 4. Literally he says he was treated like the scum of the world. The refuse, the garbage of all things. So see, when Paul says imitate me, he's he's not exactly engaging in some kind of proud self-promotion. I've been really successful, and if you want to be successful, you should do everything that I've done. That's not what he's saying. He's not, he's not promoting a kind of how to win friends and influence others kind of a program, right? It's the opposite. What Paul means when he says imitate me is, is how to be reviled by people and treated like the scum of the earth. How to lose everything, be homeless, distressed, and persecuted. Does that sound like a life you want to sign up for? That's actually what Paul means when he says, I urge you then to be imitators of me. And what he really means 
is what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, where again, in the context of, of detailing all of his suffering in this world, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what he means, of course, is I urge you to live your life like Jesus lived his life on this earth. In such unswerving devotion to the will of God that you will literally be willing to endure any kind of suffering and to lose every form of earthly comfort and even your life itself in the pursuit of God's glory, in the pursuit of the truth of God's Word, in the pursuit of the beauty of God's holiness and the work of His eternal kingdom. That's what Paul means. And so, because the reality is this, right? And, and we, we heard this in John's words from 1 John chapter 2 just a bit ago during the time of confession. The reality is this world is at enmity with God. This world despises God's glory and suppresses the truth of God's word. This world is repulsed by God's holiness and is opposed to the work of God's kingdom. This world is made up of people who, like all of us were by nature, people who are in bondage to the sin that rebels against God. People who are addicted to every form of idolatry and lawlessness under the sun. The rulers of this world shake their fists against God in defiance of His sovereign rule. The nations rage against Him in the pursuit of their own autonomy and godless agendas and immorality. And so when the Son of Man Himself came into this world, even His own people refused Him, John says. He was despised. He was rejected by men, Isaiah 53. They mocked Him. They beat Him. They crucified the Lord of glory because the world rejects the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 2 says, and exchanges that truth for lies, Romans 1. And instead of honoring Him as Lord and King, the sinful people of this world live for the sake of their own sinful passions and desires. That's what this world is. And yet the Son of Man came into this world, into the spiritual, moral darkness of this world, in order to shatter that darkness with the light of His holiness and truth and love, so that all who received Him by His grace and through faith in Him would be given the right to become children of God. And such are we, right? Born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God, John says. Born and raised to newness of everlasting life in Christ Jesus. That's what we are. And as we live in this dark world, as God's children, we can expect to be treated as He was treated. This world that hates God and rejects His truth and despises His glory and is repulsed by His holiness and lusts after sin and immorality and, and satanic lies, we can expect that if and when we remain devoted to God and to His Word and to His holiness, we will be met by the same resistance that Jesus Himself faced. That's what Paul means when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
he means just as Jesus was so thoroughly defined in his life by the glory and truth and holiness of God and by the will of God, such that he was willing to suffer the loss of everything for the sake of it, so Paul was defined in his own life by that same heart of Jesus Christ. Because he said in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And so we all, who have been given the right to become children of God, buried with Jesus in baptism, raised with Him to newness of life, we all have to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And we all have to recognize that what defines us now is not and cannot any longer be our own desires or the values of this dark world or the comforts and the conveniences that this world promises and affords to people who live according to its values, right? That's how it works in the world, right? The world says exactly what the devil said to Jesus in the wilderness. Get with the program and all this can be yours. But Jesus says, don't be friends with the world, but be willing to lose everything and take up your cross. And follow me. Jesus says, don't don't store up your treasures here in the world. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that's what Paul means when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He means don't be defined by, by the pursuit of earthly treasures. Be defined by godly truth and holiness, even if it costs you everything in this world. And the Apostle Paul was so keen on urging people to imitate him in this way, to remain dauntlessly faithful to God's truth and holiness and kingdom in this world, because he knew, Paul knew from his own very, very painful experience, that the way of Christ is the way of the cross in this world. Being a Christian... Following Jesus is not a program that leads to prosperity. It's a pathway that may very well mean persecution in a world whose values and desires are are antithetically opposed to God and His kingdom. And Paul knew that. And so one of the things that he's most desperate to tell people and exhort people to and urge people to is to imitate him as he imitated Christ. To know that the world very often stands against people who stand for Jesus and his truth and holiness. And so we've got to be willing to stand firm and remain faithful and persevere even and especially in the midst of great opposition and persecution and suffering. That's what he always means when he exhorts us to be imitators of him. And that's exactly what he meant here in Acts chapter 20 in verses 17 through 24 in his plea to the elders from the church in Ephesus. So this this is a really, really important portion of God's word for us. At the moment that we're living right here and right now in the year 2022 in the United States of America. Because right now the antithesis 
between God's truth and holiness and the ways of this world and the godless spirit of this age, the antithesis is becoming clearer and clearer and more and more obvious. And the active opposition of this world to God and His truth and God's holiness and God's kingdom, it's becoming a greater and greater reality that we will experience more and more. The potential for faithful children of God to experience opposition firsthand is growing stronger and stronger and stronger right now. And so the need for God's children to stand firm, to be unmoved, unwavering, dauntless, even in the midst of dangers as this world rages against God, the need is more urgent than ever. You can't be complacent as a Christian living in this world. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul articulates several fundamental ways in which the heart of Christ was manifest in His own life and in which the elders of the Ephesian church must be ready to imitate Him as He imitates Christ. So Paul here, in chapter 20, he's on his return voyage from his journey throughout Asia and Macedonia and Greece. You remember he spent Passover in the days of unleavened bread in Philippi. We saw that a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday. From there he traveled to Troas. We saw that last week. While he was in Troas, knowing that he only had a little time to be with them before he'd have to set sail again, hoping to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, in Troas, Paul preached and taught and talked with them all throughout the night, even after Eutychus fell out of that window and died and was raised back to life by God through Paul. Now, Luke tells us in verses 13 through 16, They've left, they're making their way south. Paul went by land, the rest went by boat, and they meet up together in Asos down, as they, they travel down the western coast of Asia Minor so that eventually they can set sail for the east past Cyprus and come again to Syria and make their way overland down to Jerusalem, hopefully by Pentecost. So because Paul was on a tight schedule, He's got a goal to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Verse 16 says that he decided not to stop at Ephesus. Because, remember, his time there in the past had been a long time and it was full of rich blessings. It was a sweet season of powerful, impactful, successful ministry. And Paul knew that if he goes to Ephesus again, he's going to stay there for a long time with those beloved brethren in the church there. And he doesn't have time. So he moves on past Ephesus. He, he stops in Miletus instead, which is to the south of Ephesus. And from Miletus, verse 17 says, Paul sent for the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, to come down and meet with him in Miletus so that he might give them this important message which we have recorded for us here in the rest of the chapter. Today we're going to focus on verses 17 through 24 and we'll look at the rest next time. But today, look at these verses with me where Paul lays out several ways in which the heart of Christ was manifest in his own life 
And he urges the elders from Ephesus, and, and by extension, the church that they pastor, that they shepherd, and by extension, our church. He urges them, he urges us to imitate him in these ways that he lived his life in this dark world. And I want to highlight three of them here for us today. And they are sacrificial service and passionate proclamation of the Word of God and being dauntless in danger. Look at verses 18 and 19. The elders of the church up in Ephesus have come to Paul in Miletus and he says this to them. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you when he was in Ephesus. The whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. See, he's doing the same thing here that he was doing in the letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth, right? He's describing his suffering. Not so that they'll feel sorry for him. Certainly not so that they'll be super impressed with him. But so that they will be prepared and ready to imitate him in their own ministries when they face persecution themselves, standing firm, staying faithful, persevering, even if and when the persecution comes. That's the point of this passage. And the first defining aspect of Paul's life in service to Christ is that it was hallmarked by, it was characterized by, sacrificial service. He didn't live for himself And he didn't decide what to do and what not to do based on how comfortable it would make him. And in a very real sense, of course, this one aspect, sacrificial service, this sums up all of the rest. If anything can be said about the ministry of the Apostle Paul, it's that his life and his ministry was a life and a ministry of service, pouring out for the sake of others, And that that service was very, very often sacrificial. It cost him dearly. There wasn't a lot, was there, that Paul gained for himself in this world as he devoted himself to the kingdom of God and to the cause of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was, he spent 30 years from the time of his conversion in Acts chapter 9 until his death in Rome. He spent about 30 years devoted to following Jesus, imitating Jesus, serving Jesus, following Jesus along the way of the cross. And during that 30 years, he didn't gain anything in terms of earthly comforts, in terms of a savings account, something to put away for the future, something so that one day he'd be able to retire comfortably. Nothing. And we've seen already in the book of Acts how Paul faced opposition and persecution and danger in all kinds of ways, shapes, and forms everywhere that he went. Riots were fulminated against him. He was unjustly and illegally imprisoned in Philippi. They hurled stones at him until they were sure he was dead. We know from his writings 
that persecution was a regular reality and that all kinds of other suffering, not just persecution, but, but, but just suffering along the way, that was also a constant part of his life. Homelessness, hunger, poverty, shipwrecks, dangerous travels, dangerous roads, dangerous rivers he had to cross, thieves along those roads who plundered him. And remember also, of course, that the life that Paul had before he met Jesus along the Damascus Road, in that life where he was rejecting Jesus and persecuting the church, Paul had the esteem of others, the approval of others. He had money. He had property. He had influence. He had power in this world. He had all kinds of earthly gain before Christ. But, he said in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. My Lord, for His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. So, Paul's willing and ready to lay it all down because Christ is worth more. The kingdom is worth more. And of course, the life that Paul lived as a Christian, he didn't simply live in pursuit of the greater blessings of eternal life that he would personally gain for himself in the life that is to come. Paul wasn't just in it for himself. Paul was willing to suffer so that others would be able to receive those blessings through the promise of the gospel also. Paul lived as a servant of others, just as Jesus was a servant for all. Paul didn't just hunker down now that he's a Christian, now that he's got his his e-ticket to eternal life and glory. He didn't just go, well... I better just keep my head down and make sure I don't suffer too much in this world and just wait it out and live in relative comfort and ease until the day he died or Jesus returned, whichever came first. That was not Paul's life. Paul lived his life deliberately and openly and publicly in such a way that he maximized his ability to bring the truth of the gospel to the world, even if that brought the reproach of the world upon his own shoulders, which it often did. He was a servant. And he was a servant who was willing and ready to suffer and to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of others. He gave up everything that he had in this world. And he pursued a path that guaranteed that he would encounter and that he would endure the world's hatred and the world's reproach. And the point of Paul saying this to the elders from Ephesus and through them to their church and through the New Testament writings to us, the point of it is not to suggest that all of us will necessarily always experience the same kind of intensity of suffering that Paul did. Maybe, maybe not. It's up to the sovereign purpose of God. But the point is for us to understand that our lives are not our own. 
It's for us to understand that the purpose of our lives as God's children in this world is not to guarantee ourselves as much safety as we can have or to afford ourselves as much pleasure and and comfort and convenience as we can get. The point is, is that as we see our lives as being defined in the same way that Paul saw his life defined as a bond servant of Jesus, as being devoted to His service and glory and kingdom, that that devotion will be so defining that we'll be willing, just as Paul was willing, to suffer the loss of anything that God desires for us to lose and to bear up whatever cross and to endure whatever hardship God might sovereignly ordain as we live in service to Him and to His kingdom and not in service to ourselves and our own desires, and our own goals, and our own ambitions in this world. That's how Paul lived, and he lived that way because he was an imitator of Christ. And Christ is the one who said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, then he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear up his own cross and come after me, can't be my disciple. What did Jesus mean? Well, he wasn't invalidating the command of God to honor your father and mother and to love your wife and your children. What he means is simply this, that as a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, someone who knows and accepts and lives their life in service to Jesus lives their life in a way that values Him far more than anything or anyone else. Even father and mother and wife and children, even their own life. A follower of Jesus is somebody, by definition, who's ready and willing to lose it all. To lay it all down. If that's what faithfulness to Jesus means and brings and requires. Paul didn't live his life for the sake of his own gain. He lived as a bond servant of Jesus and a sacrificial servant of others, willing to suffer the loss of anything for the sake of God's glory and truth and holiness and for God's kingdom. Why? Why was Paul's life as a child of God defined this way? Simple, Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And who was Christ? Who is Christ? The suffering servant of the Lord who laid down His life for many. Who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself and took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death on the cross. And so see, all of this isn't just true for the Apostle Paul as a a uniquely devoted servant of God, and it's not really true for us. Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you an imitator of Christ? Is His life in you? And is it His life in you that defines you now and your life now? Then if that's true, more and more, your life needs to look like the life of sacrificial service that Jesus lived, counting whatever cost in this dark world. That's the foundation of Paul's plea to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He says, guys, you know how I've lived. 
serving the Lord in humility and tears and, and trials. He's saying, guys, this is the deal. This is how it works for followers of Jesus in this world. You've got to be ready to sacrifice in your service of Him. And that's the first thing He's saying to us too. It's not about health and wealth and prosperity. It's about His glory. And His glory is so important and worth so much that we have got to be willing to sacrifice potentially everything, even our own lives, in service to Him. And the second thing that he said to the Ephesian elders, look at verses 20 and 21, it flows right out of that first foundational aspect of sacrificial service. The second thing that will necessarily mark the lives of faithful Christians who serve Jesus and others sacrificially in this world, the second thing is passionate proclamation of God's holy word in this world. And by passionate, I don't mean emotionally energized. That's not a bad thing. But when I say passionate proclamation, I mean in the sense of the word passion that has to do, again, with enduring suffering. I mean the kind of proclamation that Paul was willing to do. The kind of proclamation of God's Word, the kind of stance on God's truth that remains faithful to God's Word even when it's not popular and even when it invites opposition and persecution and suffering in response. That's what Paul's talking about here, right? In verses 20 and 21, he says, You know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how many Christians in the world today, how many teachers in the world today, how many pastors in pulpits today shrink back from saying what God's Word actually says because they're afraid it'll be unpopular and they're afraid of how people will respond. People aren't going to like me if I say everything God's Word says. People will oppose me if I say everything God's Word says. And so how many Christians and teachers and even pastors shrink back? Didn't Paul say... In 2 Timothy 4, that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And that time is now. That time has come, right? There has always been and there will always be a sinful tendency in this world to suppress God's truth and unrighteousness and exchange it for lies, and, and, and to do what God condemned through the prophet Isaiah, there will be this tendency in this world to call things that are evil, to call them good. And to call things that are good, to call them evil. And to put darkness in the place of light, and light in the place of darkness. That's exactly what's going on in the world today, isn't it? Things that God hates. 
Things that God clearly and unambiguously abominates in His Holy Word. People love those things out there in their sin. And so, they're not going to come and listen to a teacher who tells them things they don't want to hear. They're going to find for themselves teachers that suit their own sinful passions. Teachers who pretend to teach God's Word, but they twist it. They say, open up your Bible, and they read a verse, and then they say, here's what it means, and it's not what it means. Or they misquote it, or they rip it out of context and make it say something that God doesn't say. Paul never, ever did that, of course. He never twisted, he never distorted, he never misrepresented any portion of God's Word. Paul was constantly faithful to clearly proclaim what God's Word clearly reveals, and he did it without compromise. And he did that publicly even when people started rioting and hurling rocks at his head. He didn't just go to the people who he thought were going to be his best audience and who were going to receive him well and treat him kindly. He stood up on the rooftops and he says, this is God's Word. Take it or leave it. This is God's Word. And the other thing that Paul didn't do, not only did he never twist or distort any portion of God's Word to to make it palatable, for sinners, and suitable to their depraved passions. Also, Paul didn't leave anything out, did he? And that's another fatal flaw of cowardly Christians in this world. They crave the approval of men more than the glory of God. And so they'll quote lots of Scripture accurately without distorting any of it, but they'll limit themselves to those passages that won't offend anyone. And then they'll just kind of leave out the stuff that they think people aren't going to like. So lots and lots of talk and verses quoted about God's love, but conveniently not a lot spoken about God's justice, God's law, God's wrath against sin. Lots and lots of sermons on forgiveness and justification, but all too often not a whole lot about repentance and the pursuit of holiness, without which, Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. And again, see, not Paul, right? That wasn't how Paul preached. He says there in verse 20 that he taught the word both in public and in private. He went house to house. He taught people who were ready to learn. He sat in their living rooms one-on-one with them. And he stood out in the streets. And heralded God's word publicly even when it stirred up people against him. He was not ashamed of the gospel and of any part of the word of God. The fear of man did not affect him more than the fear of the Lord. And he said in verse 21, he testified both about faith and repentance. So important. And again, something that all too many Christians and and even pastors are, are too, frankly, cowardly to do. They'll talk all about having faith in Jesus who loves us with unconditional love, but often there is precious little, if any, 
spoken about the absolute necessity of repentance from the sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness against which the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Paul didn't leave anything out. Paul didn't shrink back from telling them everything that God's Word has to say. He didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God, he says down in verse 27. All Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 And because all of it is breathed out by God, all of it is profitable. All of it is important for us. Even the parts that expose our sin, even the parts that make us feel bad about ourselves and uncomfortable and, and say things that we don't necessarily want to hear, we need that stuff the most sometimes. And so because Paul's life was not his own, because it was no longer Paul who lived, but Christ who lived in Paul, because Paul's life was defined by sacrificial service, that's why he was a passionate proclaimer of the Word of God, willing to declare it all even when he had to suffer for it. And that's got to be us too. Willing to say it all, willing to take it all in, willing to stand firm for it all, willing to expose, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, the deeds of darkness in this world, including wherever the world or whoever is twisting and distorting and maligning and misrepresenting God's Word. You stand firm, even if you suffer for it. What good was the Old Testament prophet who soothed everyone and made them all feel comfortable with messages of peace when they were not at peace with God because of their sin. And so the wrath of God was raging towards them. What good was that prophet? They were worthless. They were false prophets. And they left people vulnerable to God's wrath. What good is a watchman who stands up on the wall all night long waiting to see if the enemy is coming and then one night he sees the enemy coming but he's too afraid to blow the trumpet and wake people up because it might make them upset. What good is he? Listen, in this world of darkness it does no good and it only reflects selfish, sinful, man-fearing cowardice to hide the light of truth under a basket. The world needs all of it. And we have to stand firm for all of it. And then thirdly today, as we take in these urgent words that Paul spoke to the elders of the Ephesian church, knowing that Jesus' words were as true for them as they'd proven to be for Paul, John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. Knowing that, knowing that the world's hatred for God and disdain for His holiness and rejection of His truth and reproach of His people, knowing that all of that was bound to pour out on these Ephesian elders even as that had been poured out on Him, Paul related to the elders of the church in Ephesus how by the power of the Holy Spirit He was going to remain dauntless even in the midst of danger. That's the third thing, dauntless in danger, because Paul desperately wants them to be dauntless in danger and us to be also. 
Look at verse 22. Paul says to them, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, lion's den, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except for this, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Listen, Paul had something that you don't have. Paul had the benefit during the course of his ministry He reveals to us here, he had the benefit of the Holy Spirit testifying to him that imprisonments and afflictions were awaiting him. Contemplate that. Contemplate the undaunted dedication to Jesus, to the kingdom, to the ministry that Jesus had called him to all the way back in Acts chapter 9. Not only through all of the suffering and affliction that he had already endured along the way, but also in light of the fact that the Holy Spirit himself is telling Paul, even more affliction awaits you. I mean, I wonder how my endurance would hold up. If the Holy Spirit came and said, I'm going to give you a glimpse of the next 20 years and it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be ugly. God did this for His prophets in the Old Testament too occasionally, didn't He? He said, Ezekiel, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be prophesying during the the deportation and enslavement in Babylon. And as you prophesy the Word of God to the people of God, it's going to be kind of like, picture this, sitting down on a thorn bush. That's how it's going to feel to you. It's going to be a lot like getting stung by scorpions, Ezekiel. That's that's how people are going to respond when you preach the Word of God. That's how your ministry is going to go. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be painful. He says to Isaiah, right? Isaiah chapter 6. Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, Here am I, Lord, send me. Right? And God says, Great. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to start preaching the word of the Lord to people who aren't going to listen. Nobody's going to hear you. And then you go all the way to Isaiah chapter 53 and he says, Who has heard a report? Truly, God, no one's listening. God says, I, I am commissioning you to a ministry that will fail by earthly standards. Your church will not be big. Your audience will not listen to you. They will persecute you. God God does this. He's he's doing it to Paul. You're going to suffer more. I wonder how our endurance would hold up. I wonder if our perseverance would prevail if the Holy Spirit told us that in the next year, in the next five years, ten years, Imprisonment, affliction, suffering, persecution, maybe even death was a guarantee for us as we continue to publicly serve Him and openly and unashamedly stand for Him and the truth of His Word and the beauty of His holiness. What do you think? Would you be in? 
The Holy Spirit didn't say to Paul, well, you've done well so far, you've suffered a lot, now head to Jerusalem and there's going to be a big retirement party. You can be done and enjoy the rest of your days on this earth stress-free, right? No. The whole well-done, good and faithful servant is going to have to wait until glory for the Apostle Paul. For now, it's this. I know you've suffered a lot, Paul. Now you've got to gird up your loins because it's going to get worse. And Paul said, my life's not my own. I don't count my life as precious to myself. I'm not here for me. I'm a sacrificial servant. It's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And so I'm willing and I'm ready to lay all of this down and lose all of this. Why? It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life that is defined by the heart and the life of Jesus is the life defined by His own willingness to suffer and sacrifice. Didn't Jesus say, whoever would save his life will lose it? And whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. What did he mean? He meant that if you're willing to follow Jesus, unless and until it costs you too much, then you're not following him at all. He meant that if your life is your priority, so that there's a limit to how much you're willing to serve Him, then you're going to lose everything. If someone, somewhere, sometime tells you that continuing to stand for Christ and His truth and His Word and His holiness and His law and His glory is going to mean the death penalty, and so you cave. You say, I can't go that far. You renounce Him then that's when you're really going to lose your life eternally. That's what Jesus means. Matthew 10.33, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Luke 14, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He means whoever is not willing to suffer the loss of everything, even his own life, can't be his disciple. He goes on there in Luke 14 to explain. He says, he paints a picture. He says, which of you, if you desired to build a big tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost and whether you have enough money to complete the project, the tower? Otherwise, if you don't do that, if you don't know what you're getting yourself into, right, and how much it's going to cost, then he says, when you've laid the foundation, you won't be able to finish. And everyone who sees that, that you've got a nice foundation but no tower, is going to mock you and say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So therefore, if any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do you see what he's saying? If you're going to call yourself his follower, his disciple, then you'd better mean, no matter what it costs me. Just like if you're going to build a tower, you'd better know how much it's going to cost, because if you don't, you won't be able to finish the job, and you'll end up in shame. That's what Jesus means. The cost of building a tower might be a million dollars. 
And if you've only got $100,000, you're not going to finish the job and you'll end up in shame. So you better count the cost first. Well, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus is a lot more than a million dollars. It is nothing short of your whole life. That's the cost. And the reason it's the cost is because He laid down His life in order to redeem your life and purchase you by the cost of His own blood. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body, 1 Corinthians 6.20. And we only glorify Him who purchased us with the price of His own life and blood by recognizing that all of life belongs to Him. Not just whatever portion of our life we are willing to surrender to His sovereign Lordship and service. All of it. He's either the Lord of all, or He's not your Lord at all. The cost of being the disciple of Him who gave His life for me is all of my life. Because it's bought, it's paid for. It's not mine. That's the cost and nothing less. If there are limits that I impose, then I'm the one exercising Lordship and not Him. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee, right? That's what Paul means when he says, I do not account my life of any value to myself, nor as precious to myself. All I want to do is finish the course. And that's not just a one-off, uniquely sort of sold-out sentiment of this one extraordinary follower of Jesus named Paul, right? This is the cost for every follower of Jesus. My life is not my own. It's His, bought and paid for, to use for His glory and His kingdom in whatever way He will. That's the cost. It has to be counted. Or else, if you don't count that cost and say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and you don't count the cost of your whole life, then you will never finish the course. That's the point. Because eventually, the cost of following Jesus will reach some line that you're not willing to cross. You'll say, well, I've suffered a lot, but now God's asking too much and I'm done. And you'll stop running the race with endurance. You'll say, I've come this far, but I cannot be expected to go any further. He's asking too much. It's too hard. The suffering is too unrelenting. The cost is too high. And you'll fall. You'll turn from Him. You won't finish the course. You'll end up in shame because it will turn out that your life was your own and not His, truly. Perseverance is only perseverance if it finishes the race, right? A guy running a marathon, it doesn't matter if he perseveres for one mile or two or ten or fifteen. Twenty-six point two. Finish the race. The entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 11, will only be found by those who continue to increase in godliness and obedience and holiness no matter what the cost until the very end. And praise God, whose steadfast love never ceases, whose mercies never come to an end, but are renewed every morning, whose faithfulness is eternally great, 
who never sleeps, who never slumbers, who never leaves, who never forsakes, whose strength is always made perfect in our weakness, whose grace is always sufficient for us. Praise God that as we run and as we toil and as the cost is counted and as the crosses are borne, praise God that He is with us through every fiery trial and that He Himself is our portion. And that He always gives us every ounce of the strength that we need to keep on running with endurance and to persevere to the very end and to finish the race no matter what the cost so that then and only then will we hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter your rest by His grace alone. And so the only question is, do we trust Him? Do we trust Him who laid His own life down for us to be the Lord of our whole lives, no matter what the cost? Do we trust the suffering servant in a way that causes his life to define our lives as lives of sacrificial service more and more and more, no matter what the cost? Do we trust the living incarnate Word so implicitly that we will stand fast and uncompromising for His Word in Scripture in season and out of season, whether it's popular or not, whether people want to come to church or not, whether people approve of it or not, whether people oppose it or not, will we stand firm because it's His Word? And His Word is living. And again, like we said last week with Peter, where else would we go, Lord? You are the only one who has the words of life. Do we trust the one who went to the cross and purchased our lives with the cost of His blood and and, and therefore count the cost of our whole lives no matter what it means in service to the Sovereign Lord? As we keep on striving, but in His strength. As we keep on running the race with the endurance that He supplies and persevering through any affliction until the very end. The satanic darkness in this world is thick, and and in many ways thickening, but the light of life and truth shines brighter. The world rages against God in hostility and in enmity against Him. And so because of that in this world we will have tribulation maybe more and more and more as we go along here. But He has overcome this world. So trust Him and stand firm and uncompromising and be passionate about the Word willing to suffer for all of it. Be dauntless even in danger if and when the world who hated your Lord hates you too. Because even though they killed him, he conquered that death. He rose and triumphed over that grave. And the worst that this world can do to you for standing firm for him, no matter what the cost, the worst they can do is what they did to him. And in him, no matter what the cost is, even if it's your life, in him we are more than conquerors, right? Romans 8, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, separate us from the love of God? 
Paul says, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And when Paul says that, he meant it, literally. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Father God, we pray that You would give us the urgency with which Jesus lived His life, with which Paul, as an imitator of Christ, lived His life, And that You would fill us with the urgency, God, that Paul was seeking to fill the Ephesian elders and the flock of God that they shepherded in Ephesus so that, God, we might live our lives as sacrificial servants for the sake of Your kingdom and glory, as passionate proclaimers of Your Word and defenders of the truth that You have revealed, And people, Father, who are dauntless even in the face of danger and who by Your strength endure and persevere and run the race until the very end because, Father, we want to finish and we want to finish well. And so, Father, fill us up and give us the strength and the courage and the conviction and the love and the grace that we need to serve Your kingdom sacrificially for the sake of Your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your programs and turn to page 11. And we're going to sing in response to all, of God, uh, all that God has revealed to us in His Word this morning. We're going to sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken. Let's sing together. Jesus on my cross 